Welcome to CubeCast, where we talk about all things finance and investing. All opinions expressed are solely the opinion of the individuals and do not reflect the opinions of the firms they work for. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Securities mentioned on the podcast may be owned by Cube or the guests on the show. With that, let's get this episode underway with the founder of Cube, Bez Rami, and principal and director of capital markets at InnoVest, CFA Stephen Fraley. Hey, 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 what is going on, Cube family? It's been a long time since I've done a podcast, but I'm happy to be back. And I am finally not solo this time around. I'm here with my good pal and seasoned investor, seasoned, experienced guy in the financial services world, Stephen Fraley. I'm happy to have you on here, man. Uh, this is going to be a really fun podcast and hopefully one that we could do uh, frequently. If we can get done weekly, that'd be great. If it's more sporadic, no problem. I know you're very busy, but uh, I can't think of anyone better to play tennis with when we're talking about the markets. Excellent. Yeah, Buzz, ha- happy to be here. Um, yeah, I-, I would love to see this continue on on a, on a regular basis and certainly busy, but never never too busy to to hang out with you for you know 30 minutes or 60 minutes a week. So it's always good information, good back and forth. Uh, as we all know, you know, we all have our our opinions on what's going on in the world, but the reality is none of us uh, never really know what's actually going to happen, right? And that's that's the fun part about the markets and what makes you know investing fun, challenging, um, painful, right? I mean, it's just par for the course when it comes to trying to figure out the market. So look, absolutely, man, absolutely. So this is going to be a fun one. I figured the best way to kick this one off is going to be a 2023 recap as we head into the final month of the year here, and then talk about what we think 2024 is going to bring. And then the best part is a year from now, we look back and say, oh, wow, we got that wrong. We got that right. And uh, and then assess from there. So let's kick this off. I have a list of questions we can go through, we'll have a nice back and forth discussion on it. Let's start with, here we are, we're about to head into December. What would you say the biggest surprise of the year has been so far? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, certainly some surprises, you know, as we transition from last year, which is challenging into 2023. Um, for me, it's probably just been the overall resiliency and strength of of the economy. And really, that's been driven by uh, the consumer, right? And so, uh, of course, the United States is a very consumer driven economy. And the, the consumer has just remained incredibly resilient, incredibly strong, continues to spend right in the wake of you know a lot of challenges right higher prices whether that's you know rent mortgages commodity prices um, just general day-to-day prices that are going to influence you know most most people's budgets and we've just continued to, to spend and and part of that's probably because uh you know underlying strength in the labor market right so absolutely that's certainly kind of the biggest surprise as we you know really near here at the end of the year um Unbelievable. Already getting ready to to gear up for December. I know. <laughs> and you know, I'm asking myself, we so if we were right around 12 months, market is in turmoil, right? Uh, it was just starting to repair itself because it bottomed really hard in that October area of last year. Um, everything, every stock you can think of is down in the dumps. And everyone's saying a recession is all but guaranteed. I mean, it we we called it the most 
anticipated recession of all time virtually, and it never came. And I, I think that is that really speaks to how funny the market can be. And I'm wondering, and we'll get into this a little bit more down the road too, uh, if now I'm starting to see hope start to pick up about maybe a no landing scenario here. And now I start to ask myself, okay, now we're getting optimistic. Is this the time we run into that actual consumer slowdown? The second we start to say, oh, wait, maybe we don't have a slowdown at all. So that is something that was first on my list as well. The strength of the consumers, something I did not expect myself. But I'm going to go a different route here on the most surprising factor, Scoo. And it's how poorly these banks have run themselves. I think this, and we forget about this because it was more of like a Q1, Q2 event. And so much has happened since then. I have to say, like you talk about some of the smartest guys in the room flopping like this to the point where, you know, we are, we're seriously concerned about a run of the banks. And, and what, what drives me crazy, and I, I can't for the life of me understand this. So this is people's jobs, right? Managing your duration, bond exposure, everything. And they were not smart enough, but the consumer was. Get, get a load of this. So you have record low interest rates, okay? You know, regular Joes knew, I'm going to refinance my mortgage. I'm going to do this. I'm going to extend out my maturities because debt is so cheap, it's virtually free. But at the same time, the guys with the Harvard degrees, the guys who've been doing this for 20, 30 years are getting themselves wrapped up in 20 and 30 year bonds paying just a hair over 0% and now realizing, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, the actual book value of these bonds now is pretty trash. And now we're worried about the FDIC having to come in and do a way bigger bailout than the 250,000, whatever the heck it is, insurance. Yeah. I think to me, that is the biggest surprise. Uh, you look at a lot of these uh, AFS securities is available for sale securities on Bank of America's balance sheets. Even the big boys are hiding it a little bit better, but I don't know if we're fully out of this. I think, okay, now maybe yields are coming down and it's definitely cushioning them a little bit, but their mismanagement here is my biggest surprise in 2023. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, kind of scary, right? Cause you know, it is a big surprise, but should it be right? You know, I mean, the reality is, is just a lot of these these individuals, a lot of these organizations, a lot of these banks, companies just have gotten way too comfortable with, you know, lower for longer, zero interest rate environment, lever up, take more risk, right? And and ultimately, you know, that that came back and, and bit them, uh, you know, significantly. And so, yeah, I mean, you'd think there'd be better risk management, better oversight um, in terms of, you know, controls, especially since you are talking about a very regulated industry. Yep. in banking. But the reality is, is that, you know, this has been so normal for so long now at this point. And I think these individuals just content, continue to put risk on risk on risk. Um, and ultimately, you know, the scenario where they expected, um, you know, the, the worst case scenario that could possibly happen happened, right? And that's short term rates just ballooning, you know, from basically zero to, you know, five, five and a half. So, um, I wish I could say it was super surprising. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've seen enough happen in this industry that it it really isn't that surprising at the end of the day. That's wild, man. So, you, you know, people are greedy and people are trying to make more money. And, um, you know, do you think it was a we don't believe the Fed or they actually thought like 
this is not inflation's transitory. I still see some people say that inflation actually turned out to be transitory. Like uh, in the grand scheme of things, two years of inflation is still technically transitory. I gotta say that's BS. I I, I don't I don't know how much I I subscribe to that. Yeah, I don't know that I subscribe to that. Um, I, I, I'm guessing it's a combination of a they were willing to they thought the economy would would continue to tick forward and rates would stay low enough. Like I think they had to expect rates to to move up, but I thought they maybe expected there's so much liquidity in the market um, that that would shelter them from some of these you know kind of outsized scenarios and that maybe rates, yeah, they are going to tick up, but maybe they're going to tick up a couple hundred basis points, right? And that's 500. So, you know, it's just a huge difference if you think about when you're starting at such low base rates, the incremental impact of rate hikes is just magnified, right? Versus starting at at higher rates. And so starting at zero and moving up to, you know, five and a quarter, five and a half is just so dramatic um, that I just don't think anybody, you know, really expected that to happen and, and happen for such a prolonged period. And then that's going to bring us obviously into, you know, going forward, right into 2024, where, where, what direction do we go? Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's stick to 2023 a little bit more. So that's kind of like the, obviously there wasn't too many, uh, surprises outside of that. There was some, but those I would say were the big ones. If we were to talk about though, now, what would you say? Like, for example, the brightest spot for you was in 2023. That could be maybe something you did right. Did you uh, go into, you know, the fangs at the right time? Was it a specific stock? What would you say your biggest highlight of 2023 was? Like, was it a dip you bought? Uh, You know, it could have been maybe buying NVIDIA, something like that. What would you say it was for you? Yeah, I mean, it certainly wish I did a little bit more right, of course, um, (laughs) like most. But always at the end of the day, um, you know, I know we've talked about it, you know, most of uh, of my investments are diversified, whether it's in retirement plan or just, you know, mutual fund assets. But the stuff that I do invest, you know, in terms of individual stocks, it's, you know, I was buying stuff like AMD, um, you know, back in, you know, the 60s. Yeah, we were together um, on that. That was fantastic. A couple of um, South American companies, both Stone and Newbank. Um, Newbank is probably my best individual performer. Uh, crushing on PBR as well, man. I mean, that was a nice oil trade right there for you as well. Yeah, I mean, oil and gas names, I mean, have been a little bit more challenged this year, right? I mean, just because they had such a big run up last year. Um, but I still think, yeah, I mean, so, you know, some of the some of those names, um, you know, wish certainly, obviously, I'd, I'd, you know, maybe gone heavier into the fangs, right? Um, I've still got some some legacy holdings that I've owned since, you know, 2005, no, dude. And like, you know, Apple and stuff that I just, you know, just chug along, but I'm not really adding to them, of course. Um, but yeah, do I wish I would have rewind the clock and just loaded into NVIDIA? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, or, uh, that's where we need the crystal ball to, uh, to, to appear and actually, uh, do some good work for us. For sure. And we're going to touch on those names in the, in, in a little bit. Um, I would agree there. I, we definitely have some uh, mutual names. So AMD was was huge. Uh, I got some purchases as, as low as the upper 50s, which was amazing earlier in the year. Um, Tesla at 104 was a big bright spot for me. I think it was January 3rd. So kicking the year off there was really nice. Um, smaller company in the fintech space. We both killed it. Shift four. We doubled our money in that stock in what? Maybe two quarters. Um, that was a fantastic one for us. And then CrowdStrike here. CrowdStrike chugging along 9% today. 
on excellent earnings. I'm only a few bucks away from doubling our money there. A lot of the cube guys are in that. That's been a humongous winner. We're all in around like a 120, one anywhere from like 115 to like 130 average. I'm like 120, 121. Um, that's been huge and it's been relatively stress-free, honestly. Um, uh, and those were newer positions. Obviously, when you have Microsoft just marching its way to 400, it's always nice to see, you know, that that's been huge as well. Um, so yeah, I, 2023 has been, I've never had a year in which so many names I own move in different directions. Yeah. Like the, 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 everything, everything just tailed so many different ways. You know, I would have liked some smaller caps to have done better. Um, but then the large caps, which I didn't think could have more gas just stepped on it. So, uh, but again, that's why you diversify. Right. Um, so all in all, it really hasn't been that bad of a year. Um, I do have concerns about the breadth of the market. I'm hoping that's a 2024 um, event that we see some some more broadening of the base. That'd be nice. Um, and I want to use this as a leeway into we'll start again with maybe more of the pessimistic side and then move into the more bullish side as we look at the 2024 now. So what would you think the biggest risk is in 2024? Is it the same risks maybe we saw in 2023 or is it like a brand new environment and ballpark here? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately when I look around, I think the biggest risk continues to be that rates just stay higher for longer, right? So kind of a higher for longer environment, right? We've been in this lower for longer environment for, you know, a decade plus, uh, really since we came out of the global financial crisis. So, you know, nearly, you know, 14 plus years by the time we started actually hiking rates. So I think now you could argue, you know, it's the flip side, right? It's 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 rates staying higher for longer, it's upcoming uh, debt maturities for businesses. It's you know certain parts of the market that I think are going to be a lot more stressed, that are more levered, more highly reliant upon the capital markets to obtain financing. Um, those are, are sectors, and, and particularly companies that are going to find challenges. And I just think you know the biggest risk is again that kind of from a monetary policy that long and variable lack of what the Fed has done, and it's just taking a lot longer, you know, to actually be felt through through the economy. But I mean, if rates stay where they are today, and we're talking about that a year from now, there's going to be a lot more companies that have defaulted, that uh, you know have, have gone bankrupt, that are just re- completely restructuring or trying to find ways out of their, their current capital structure. So I think that's where there's going to be a lot of risk, um, particular parts of the market as well um, within, the, within the credit markets could see some, some challenges. For sure. I, I have to agree there. Um, I also think, though, Scoo, on the flip side, is there's a major risk in the Fed also uh, cutting too soon. I think the flip side here. So, yes, keeping rates elevated uh, higher for longer has its risks as well. I'm going to go ahead and say here, we start to see a weaker consumer housing start to give a little bit. We've seen the Fed pivot nonstop. A lot of the issues that we talk about with the banks, because they thought the Fed would pivot. That, yeah, they're, they're, you know, they're faking it, they're faking it, they're bluffing. But we've seen them fold to pressure. We absolutely have. And uh, I think that's a big risk here. I'm not sure I see it at the same level of a Volcker risk where he cut and inflation spiked again. I'm not sure we're that sensitive uh, in the same regard as, as back then. But I do think that's a risk here. Um, that we need to keep an eye on uh, because we don't want to keep up with this inflation and have to do it again where we're hiking again to put down inflation once more and just 
you know, having a complete repeat of 2022, that'd be terrible. I, I think what is also a big risk right now is how much people are looking at the economy, though. And I said this partially in the beginning and, and saying to themselves, OK, maybe we're going to avoid any kind of landing. And I I want to get confident in the consumer, man. I, I really do. I, I look at some family members, you know, you know, we all sat down at Thanksgiving dinner. The If I could say this, where the market's at right now and how my everyday relatives in the economy are talking about the economy are worlds apart. Yeah. I don't know if it was the same at your household and your family, but my family is talking about how expensive everything is, how they need to cut back, X, Y, Z. It doesn't sound much like what the market is showing right now. Would you agree with that? What do you think about that? I mean, I think, yeah, sentiment is certainly right disconnected from where where the market is. Um, so, I, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of challenges. I know we've talked about this quite a bit. Um, I, you know, I, I again, I'm a, a pretty big believer in this long and variable lag from a monetary policy standpoint. You've got a lot of challenges, you know, coming forward for kind of your just, you know, middle of America family, right? Where you've got student loan payments that just kick back on in October, right? I think the average student loan payment is 300 a month. Yep. That's $3,600 a year. You know, that's after tax, right? So on a pre-tax basis, that's $5,000 of income that you're basically allocating um, to student loans that you probably thought were gone, right? You just mm. thought I was never going to have to deal with this again. You know, there's also really interesting data points, like a third of individuals that had student loans frozen went out and bought new cars. Right, because they said, "Hey, I've got all this extra money. I don't have an outgoing payment." All of a sudden, they go out buy new cars. We know auto loan rates have, have crept up, of course, um, in conjunction with everything else. And now, all of a sudden, you've got you know student loan student loan payments coming back online. So, I think there's going to be some challenges. I think what's kept the economy strong certainly, you know, it's pretty bifurcated, right, between kind of the top and the bottom of spenders and earners in the U.S. And that continues to. Um, I think play its way, play its way out. I mean, it continues to widen. And so how much of that spending is made up maybe of the top whatever percent of earners, right? Versus, you know, the bottom 10%. I think there's just a, a large driving force there that we don't know the truth behind it, but I think, you know, the, the reality is kind of middle America um is certainly facing a lot of challenges when it comes Great. to higher prices, costs. All these other things. I mean, insurance premiums are, are going through the roof. I mean, it's it's everywhere. I mean, I just sat down, had a meeting with a, with a, a big real estate investment firm um, out in out in LA earlier this week, and the increase year over year in insurance premiums um, for their multifamily. I mean, it's about twenty seven percent. So, I mean, it's just it's super challenging right across the board. It's not just prices for food. It's not you know, it's everything. Um, we'll see. It's uh, certainly a disconnect between, I think, general average American sentiment and, you know, what the market's uh, pricing right now. Absolutely. So I actually want to take that for a minute. And is there a silver lining in a weaker consumer? I hate the way this sounds, right? But if I'm trying to look at the bright spots of a weaker consumer, school, we, sp we spoke about this maybe... I want to say 12 to 18 months ago at the onset when this was happening. And none of it, we didn't, neither you or I expected this to happen immediately. But we did talk about down the road, 
the lagging effects of these rate hikes that you're talking about could potentially lead to deflationary prints. I'm not talking about disinflation. I'm actually talking about negative CPI prints. Okay. Do you think we could see some of that in 2024? What does your gut tell you? Do you actually, because if we're talking about a weaker consumer, we know, right, uh, that uh, CPI, uh, a third of it's made up from housing. Okay. We see even a 5% pullback. And let me tell you, if housing's pulling back, that means auto's pulling back. That means a lot is pulling back. Because right now, housing is probably one of the most strongest areas you can think of, right? It's of one of the last dominoes to fall, you could say. If that's giving 5%, maybe 10% out, uh, we're looking at negative you know, CPI prints. We're actually looking at deflation. Do you think that is a possible factor? in 2024, in any given month. I'm not talking about a month or a month basis, but on a year-over-year basis, maybe sometime in June or maybe August or maybe a year from now. Can you see that happening? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a possibility. I know, you know, I was actually thought that that was a real possibility this year at some point, you know, but again, the consumer was much stronger, right? Which kept prices uh, elevated, um, kept inflation, you know, very, very present within the economy. So I actually thought that was a, a possibility, really, you know, middle to like summer of this year where we saw the huge year over year declines in like the commodity prices, right? Yes. But everything else held up so strong that it just offset, um, you know, kind of some of the, the core CPI numbers. So at this point, I think that scenario becomes less likely just because you're going to have these year over year comps that are lower, Right on a go forward basis. I mean, the big piece is, as you mentioned, shelter. It's just, it's really challenging. It's hard to predict these things, of course, but it's just, it's hard to see a scenario where shelter drops off, you know, dramatically. The supply from, is from, so constrained. From my standpoint, it's just, there's so many variables at play, right? I mean, I think I saw a stat that, you know, 33%, 35% of homeowners have no debt, right? think baby boomers that have paid out, you know, they've completely paid off their entire mortgage. So they're not going anywhere. Right. Um, And then, so say, you know, that leaves you with, you know, 65% remaining of the market, you know, 60 plus 70% of that piece right there is locked in it, you know, with a, with a long-term mortgage that starts with a three likely. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, that's just going to lead to a lot of limited supply, as you mentioned, which should prop up, you know, home prices at the end of the day. And then, you know, what's your alternative? It's, you know, rental and there's going to be extreme demand, right? And we all, yeah. you know, think know how supply and demand works. And um, if there's not enough supply and there's, you know, continued increasing demand for, you know, apartments, condos, that's going to keep those prices up. So it's hard for me to see a scenario where shelter sees a big year over year price decline. Uh, and that's going to be the driving force at this point. Of- yeah of inflation i think to see a, a negative kind of year over year print yeah it would be wild um the only thing i can think of that helps that at all is that multifamily builds are like all-time highs that's really mm-hmm. the only thing i can maybe say would help that alleviate that as an alternative to owning a house but um <clears throat> yeah it, it's gonna be tough it would be tough and it would need housing to happen i i think that's fair to say and and the supply is, continues to be an issue and right now if you look at you know names like toll brothers and and the like NVR things don't look rocky at all for them right now. Those stocks just continue to make, you know, new highs. At least last I checked about a week or two ago. Um, 
But uh, I, I think that covers, though, a lot of the risks heading into, into 2024. If, if we could take a minute here to talk about maybe beyond that, right? So one of the questions I, I got that I was like, you know what? I'm going to put this in the podcast here. Yeah. Um, people I've seen are worried about a lost decade, okay? We, we've seen that in the past uh, where it's a whole 10 years of just nothing happening. I mean, you know, 2000 to 2010 was responsible for, for that big time. Yep. Uh, yep. We're three years into this decade, Scoop. Okay. We're up about 40% in this decade. You know, you take a compound annual growth rate there, it's around 12%, like 11.9% uh, compounded. Do we think that's sustainable for the next three years? Um, and do we think that's sustainable for the rest of this 2020 decade? Are, is that what your expectations are? Do you think we can continue compounding at 12%? What's your gut tell you, buddy? Um, well, What's your gut tell you? Tell, tell it to yeah, straight. And the answer, I mean, I think it no, but I mean, I just don't think that's 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 in the cards. So I'd certainly love to be wrong, right? That's one thing I would just gladly say, yep, missed the mark on there. And I'd love to see, you know, us to S P to be at, you know, 10,000 by the end of the decade. Um, <laughs> but I just it just seems very challenged, right? Higher interest rates obviously puts puts pressure on a lot of businesses right now. There's some businesses that are better off right now, right? I mean, the, the, the mag seven, for example, right? Low debt, high cash flow, right? They're actually earning a spread yeah, right now. So they're going to actually probably come out of this better than anybody, but I, I, it's hard to, it's hard to kind of glass over and not think about valuations and where we are. And historically starting point valuations are correlated with future return. Now, we all know that that can last a lot longer than, than most people expect, both on you know overvalued and undervalued sides. But historically, over five-year periods, over 10-year periods of returns, starting point valuations do matter. And things look pretty expensive. I mean, the top 10 names uh, in the S&P 500 are trading at almost 30 times forward earnings. So that's about forty four percent over the historical average for the top ten names in the in the, in the index. Yeah. So that could be a lot of pain potentially. So I don't know. It, it's challenging. Um, my my gut is absolutely not. There's no way we're going to rip off twelve percent annualized returns to the end of the decade. Um, now, lost decade at this point probably would be really challenging. No one would like to see that because that means we'd be giving up you know quite a bit of of cushion that we've already built. Um, but you know, if you think about allocation, and one thing I've talked about and continue to is that you know it could be a period where bonds look really good relative to stocks on a risk-adjusted basis. If you think about just going forward, it's also probably an environment where when rates do start coming down, ideally small caps could that could be a mega mega tailwind for small caps to potentially outperform large caps, which they haven't done now, you know, in in fifteen years. And, you know, similarly, I think it's an environment where historically international equities could outperform U.S. equities, um, where there's less growth focused, right? They're not as reliant upon maybe lower rates to fuel future growth or future price appreciation uh, within the market. So those are some of the things we're thinking about um, that I'm thinking about. But, you know, it may just be that... You know, the large companies in the U.S. are the safest and people just continue to plow away their money there. And it doesn't matter what we say or do. And those are just going to continue to just outperform everything. Absolutely. So I'm in agreement with you. Um, and I'm going to 
have a little fun with this and a little bone to pick with this. So yeah, I don't expect it. Now, there's a lot of things going on in my mind as to why I don't expect that. So valuation you touched on. Absolutely. It's hard to see um, you know, so much additional gains off, you know, 30x multiples, especially when you have amongst that mag seven a pretty mixed exposure to different areas like apple for example you're getting consumer discretionary exposure right uh meta and google you're still getting a lot of advertising exposure right nvidia less so now the ai boom is secular at this point it's not going to be like that of their gaming where it was more cyclical Uh, i think this actually help them big time now where it's like this is a much more sustainable growth especially as they move more into software that even makes them more of a recurring play down the road um microsoft i think is that's why it's my favorite it's the most diversified um Uh and it's more b2b um or b2b to c and i think that's also heavily recurring azure also cloud recurring um so i look at that and i say okay uh this could be difficult as a whole to really prop up the market going forward, especially on a valuation basis, because I think 2024, they also start to go their own way too. Um, I think they they spread out. Some do better than others, as, as opposed to all of them climbing higher. Uh, number two, why? So valuation number one, number two. When I look at uh, real yields, man, I mean, bonds have to attract some kind of inflow. And it yeah. has to come from somewhere. Now, I believe the gain has been in the fa- in the fangs or mag seven has been because they are essentially a safer haven than almost the government at this point. Microsoft has a higher credit rating. Definitely definitely safer than the government. Absolutely. Microsoft has a higher credit rating than that of the U.S. government at this point. You know, it's ridiculous. I think Apple's on that list as well. Okay, so they have been not just a, oh, well, let me go to them because their earnings are completely uninterrupted by a worldwide pandemic, by higher, they are immune to anything and everything. Why would you not pour into them? But then you take into account the lower rates at the time. Absolutely another reason to go into them. You know, you want that risk on. Then you take into account the the risk reward compared to the government. You're like, I'll take it too. I'll get more yield and less risk. And now, you know, you look at though what changes now is, okay, if if yields, if the Fed really is done hiking, when do people say, okay, I'm now going to start to allocate towards bonds. So I do see now a competitive investment happening now for the first time in a long time with actual real yields. Because sure. even if earlier, you could have said, well, inflation's this, you know, bonds are still here. It doesn't pan out. Yeah, I mean, you have real positive yields, right? I mean, for the first time in, you know, a, a while. I mean, we're a long the, time. The, I mean, we're in the the longest bond market drawdown ever. I mean, we're like 42 months now from peak to trough. Of, Ridiculous. And we're not even close to getting back, right? I mean, right now, as of right now, we're still so far underwater. TLT was um, 170. It was just bottoming at 81. So, TLT. Yeah, it's pretty, That I mean, that's wild. I mean, I think, you know, inevitably, right, there's a lot of cash on the sidelines. That cash could presumably start working its way into just kind of your core bonds, right? Your your ag like types of of bond where you are you know locking in some some duration you are locking in higher rates that could be a tailwind i mean flows have a, a big impact not necessarily in you know the corporate side but other parts of the bond market that are more flow dependent um especially you know like municipal markets where it's like super flow dependent where money has just come come completely out 
I think it'll start probably going back in. Um, but I mean, yeah, the risk reward's great, right? If you think about, you know, an equivalent 1% rise in rates versus drop in rates, and, you know, it's completely skewed positively to owning bonds at this point. Like you can stomach another 1% increase in rates. I mean, this is assuming you're not, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 year duration, you know, but if you're five, you're completely insulated through your, your, your current coupon, right? Yeah. Um, so, but if rates drop, you're getting a huge tail tailwind um, to, to price appreciation. So absolutely, it looks like a great, you know, risk reward. Um, it looks like it would actually serve as a diversifier and actually protect if we actually saw a pullback in the market and we saw the economy go into a recession. Because um, I think that's when money would just fly into U.S. bonds. Exactly. Right? And then now that draws down on the, you know, the gains for the decade, right? Uh, number three reason, by the way, Scoo just hit me. Uh, how can you keep compounding at a 12% rate off a $3 trillion valuation? Yeah. At, I mean, at what point yeah. do law of large numbers play into something here? Okay. Number four, it's the most crowded trade. The MAG7 is the most crowded trade. They, they pulled up the numbers on hedge fund allocations. Oh, it's, everyone is in them. There's not a soul that does not own these names. Okay. Yeah. So you take that into account. And then again, now, you know, uh, reasons five, six, and seven. I would say yes, small cap. Eventually, you have to look the other way, right? What is what is cheap international? What is cheap? You know, maybe finally a weaker dollar, something along those lines can help out. Yeah. Um, and and then the last point I'll make is uh, two more points. One, I think the FTC starts to get involved big time. I, I, at what point do we start to say these guys? And I'm a capitalist at heart. Make no mistake. But at what point do we start to treat them like the big banks that are just too big to fail? Right? Like. How do we still allow them to do seventy billion, hundred billion dollar acquisitions at this point? Like you almost have to shut down M and A completely for these guys. You you have to even. I think in the next two to five years, there will be a lot of talk around breaking them up. I, yeah, I really yeah. believe that's a serious um, uh, potential. And then uh, I'm going to go ahead and say my last reasoning as to why potentially it's a uh, slower, lesser return the rest of the decade is because I look at these fangs, right? These Mag Sevens as like cruise ships, right? where there are amazing up and coming sectors that they can capitalize on AI, definitely one of them, you know, quantum computing, blockchain, you name it, then they'll keep coming as, as time passes. It becomes increasingly difficult, two things. One, to be able to pivot such a large organization to actually capitalize in a meaningful and agile manner on these new opportunities. And number two, even if they do, these businesses are so large now, what kind of impact will it even make materially to top and bottom line to even create more multiple expansion, more earnings expansion, you know, at that point, right? Because like even if this like Vision Pro, for example, if you want to talk about the opportunity in VR, right, and AR for Apple, do you know how many Vision Pros at $3,000 price tag they'd have to even sell to make a dent in their hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue they do with iPhones and Macs and the like? It's, it's insane. It won't even move the needle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's where I might, might maybe actually slightly disagree here. I think that's like what these companies have. They have such an advantage when it comes to new technology like AI, like, you know, quantum computing, as you mentioned, because they have just the the ultimate competitive advantage, which is network effects. And they can just anything like this, they can just pump through and it immediately touches billions of users. Right. So Amazon, Apple, Google. Um, Microsoft. I mean, they have such a robust network of customers already that 
they're going to just be way ahead of the game when it comes to being able to actually implement. Because the, the biggest challenge with new technology, right, is being able to actually get it uh, and get people to believe in it at scale, right? But they already have that because they have trusted customer base. So that's where I actually think that they're way better off than anybody when it comes to this because they already have literally almost every user in the world connected to them in some aspect. And Absolutely. so you're, right. you're, not wrong. you're not wrong. Push anything out as an added service is an added this. And if you believe a lot of the, you know, like the McKinsey studies on AI and what it's going to add to GDP, et cetera. And you say, you know, what are we're 25 trillion in GDP now, roughly? I mean, and you're saying maybe this adds, I don't know what, you know, some of the numbers are all over the place, but maybe it adds an incremental, you know, 1% per year to GDP. Well, that's significant. And if that compounds and they all get a chunk of that, well, it could still, you know. Then you get that number, add, you get that compound. Quite a bit. So like that's, I guess, you know, that's that's the other side is that they already have all the users, they already have the entire customer base, and so distribution they can, networks, everything they can't push it through. And everyone's so so committed to it, right? Like Microsoft, everybody, you know, no one's getting off of Microsoft's platform, no one's getting off the Apple platform, no one's you know moving away from, from and Nvidia GPU you know, right now. Yeah. So it's just they've got so many just roots dug into all these customers and consumers that all they have to do is push this stuff out. Is an added, you know, enhancement benefit. People will likely pay for it. Businesses will pay for it if it's going to improve their profitability. And then, you know, the 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 network effects just continue to compound. And that's that's the case that says these companies will just continue to just grow. But yeah. I, you know, it, no, it's no, absolutely, it's hard. It's hard to argue against that, right? I'm taking the opposite side, but nothing you're saying is wrong. I'm just thinking about like AI specifically. So AI probably has the greatest potential out of all of them, right? Um, yeah. it's less, it's at least niche. Everyone can benefit from it, whether you're creating the product or you're using it to expand your margins. Um, but you're just going to go out and buy these companies anyways. If someone's doing something better than you, you know, Microsoft's just going to go buy them. Just, you know, like, yeah, and that's what I'm buy. saying. I mean, that's I, what they're going to do anyway. So like, yeah, they, I don't think that should happen anymore at this point. I, I, it's ridiculous. Honestly, so, I, I, you know, <laughs> to drop in the bucket for them. I mean, it's, you know, it is okay, I'll come by you for 10 billion. No problem at all. And look at know, Activision I'll, Blizzard for Microsoft. It's just what? 70 billion, something like that. Boom, just like that, man. No problem. And so, you know, just fill, you know, infiltrate that through our our network and boom, it's immediately that business is worth probably twice what they bought it for, just because, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, All right. Then that's that's who knows. no, you, exactly. Exactly. And that's why it's such a good topic to talk about. So that was a really good question that we got come in. Um, so with that, it's actually a nice leeway into this next question. So, what is the one sector you're most excited about? Uh, this coming decade here? Is there anything like you're really, is it AI? Is it, you know, is it blockchain? What what would you say your most optimistic and excited uh, segment? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, there's different parts of this answer, right? In terms of, you know, I think certainly artificial intelligence is going to be a big driver. I'm, I'm really just honestly excited about, you know, the possible opportunities and as a consumer, right? And as an employee, like what what are the opportunities what what could this bring forward you know for businesses for individuals for just you know that's the coolest part of i think some of these new technologies and just not really from an investment standpoint but from a from a consumer standpoint like you know everyone likes cool new shiny toys right so it's like <laughs> what are we going to have you know how is this going to impact our lives how is it going to impact the things we like to do outside of work um or the markets right so i think that's that's exciting I think there's obviously going to be great investment opportunities along the way. Um, I think honestly, and it's like boring, and I've kind of been a, a little bit bullish on it personally, but I think energy 
yeah. is a great sector for the for for the foreseeable future because capital investment has been has gone down so much. Um, there's a, a huge supply demand imbalance that'll likely play out for the next five plus years, in my opinion. Um, you know, oil and gas use is not going away. It's not going down. And again, when you have underinvestment over the last several years, um, whether it's offshore drilling, wh- whatever it may be, right? At some point, I think the U.S. finds a way to to utilize natural gas more, right? I mean, I just think there opportunities sense. where we have an abundance of it. We need to build out the infrastructure. I think there's going to be great opportunities in oil and gas. Um, and I think like the, the majors in oil and gas are going to be great because they're thinking about this stuff five, 10 years down the road. They're actually strategically trying to allocate. And I think that they're great places to be. They're as well capitalized as they've ever been. Um, they're continuing to focus on the shareholder, which is, you know, paying down debt, buying back shares, increasing dividends, all things that, you know, shareholders and investors want to see. And they're thinking about the landscape over the next five to 10 years, not just, you know, what are we trying to do on a, on a day-to-day, month-to-month basis? So Yeah, I tell people all the time, like, uh, the energy names of today are not what they were of the past. No. The balance sheets are delevered. They're so much healthier. CapEx is way down. Cash is way up. And they're diversified. Oh, look at look at Exxon totally. building a lithium plant yeah. in Arkansas. Totally. But they're, they're looking into hydrogen. Yeah. You know, now they're looking into nuclear. These yep. are completely diversified now, and totally, it, it's it's exciting. So for me, I will say energy is exciting. I'll take it a step further and go energy storage. I think is extremely exciting uh, because it's also it, that doesn't automatically mean it's uh, related to you know solar or wind for that matter. It, it's agnostic in regard to energy storage. It does, wherever the energy is coming from, it could be hydrogen, it could be nuclear, it could be uh, not gas, but you need to manage the grid. And the grid is something that we need to solve in this yeah. next 10 to 20 years. So I'm very excited about that. I am excited about autonomy. And I've always been more excited about autonomy outside of our passenger vehicles. I, I think there's so much uh, excitement to be had in autonomy when you look at places like um, like shipyards, uh, mining uh, fields, things like this, where you have this industrial autonomy. I think that's where it gets really exciting, right? Um, so I'm focusing on places like that. And then I think as you look globally, emerging market fintech is so exciting. Yeah. You know, oh, you're, yeah. you're finally looking at a consumer base that has been, you know, unbanked for the for until now, you know, and yeah. Them now, they're going through this renaissance that maybe we went through in the 90s that they're going through now. I think that runway is so exciting. I think people um, are underestimating how much room there is for that to grow. I know we look at fintech in America like, oh, you know, yeah, like what more can we possibly do for fintech here? You know, everyone's got Venmo, everyone's got Cash App, everyone's got PayPal, yada, yada. But, uh, you know, you look at Africa, you look at India, you look at Southeast Asia, you look at, uh, you know, Brazil, Argentina, just all of South America, man, it yeah. is exciting. And there, yeah. there's a lot of money to be made down there in this. I think, I mean, India, you mentioned India. I mean, India has probably the best combination of um, accommodating policy, demographics, 
more so than any other country in the world right now with, of course, a massive opportunity set. So I think India is like a slam dunk in terms of opportunities. Now it's harder, you know, from an investment standpoint, that doesn't make it easy, right? Because it's more challenging. You have to get access, those types of things. But if you look at, you know, working age population growth, if you look at um, the accommodating business policies that, that Modi's put in place and that they're trying to accommodate going forward, I mean, they are making it much more investable. You've also seen, you know, a lot of the MAG7 names we talked about deploy billions of dollars into India, right? And they're not doing it because, you know, they think that, you know, there's no opportunity. They're doing it because there's a huge opportunity set to capture. Oh, yeah. Look at Apple moving some facilities from China to India. India, I think, is going to, I mean, going to be a monster. They literally have the exact opposite issue of China in terms of working age population growth, accommodative business policy. Those two countries couldn't be moving Spot on directions. So certainly area. um, And I like, you know, if we're talking specifics, just I continue to think like just from an interest standpoint, genetics, I think continues to be a really interesting area and like the cool stuff that the companies are doing there. um, Yeah. Genomics is going to be huge. And, you know, I look at a name like Illumina and these others, they've gotten dude wrecked, absolutely wrecked. There is opportunity there. I know they have to spin off Grail and get rid of that. That's most likely yep. going to have to happen. But uh, you look at 10X Genomics, all these names in that pile that have been just brutalized um, because of this higher rate environment. I think there's a lot of opportunity there as well. Um, I always ask myself, do I just want to play? Uh, I've done well with uh, Kathy Wood's Arc Genomics back in the day. Uh, thankfully, got out of that one I did. But uh, sometimes I wonder, maybe I'll, it's better off to play the ETF game there and leave it in the hands of smarter people because it is a little bit of a complex you oh, know, industry to understand when you're a layman. For sure. But yeah, just from an opportunity standpoint, with all the continued struggles and, you know, from a genetic standpoint, um, you know, US and globally, I mean, there's just such an opportunity said we need more information, we need better access to testing, right? I mean, it's just huge, huge implications potentially on health costs, you know, down the road. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah. And the cool thing about all these technologies that are coming our way, uh, they're all deflationary yeah. in their own regard. They all are. They they uh, they reduce prices and increase productivity. That's exactly what, what deflation is. So um, the next question we have here, Scoo, of the MAG-7, which are you most bullish on? Which is the most bearish on for 2024? Uh, see, I'm terrible at this type of stuff. I mean, a one-year estimate, I mean, whatever I pay. Like if you were going to pair, if you're going to pair a long short trade, what would you do? Well, whatever I say, do the opposite of, um, <laughs> for sure. Um, it, it's just so hard. It really depends on the continued, you know, direction of the economy, right? Like I could continue to see, for example, NVIDIA do very well. If if the consumer continues to stay strong, businesses continue to spend up, that has probably more leeway to go just because of the AI demand. Now, if the economy starts to soften, that's probably going to be one that's going to absolutely get hit the hardest, right? So it's like, Bob, it really is dependent on you know, where things are going in terms of, you know, stability. I, you mentioned Microsoft. I think, again, they're just so well diversified. Longer term out of the names, I think Microsoft is a great stable play. And then you pair that with like an NVIDIA and Tesla to get your, you know, your your kind of super, you know, alpha possible generation long term. Um, so I know I didn't didn't answer that question. Oh, at all, so. it's a, <laughs> no, I'll, listen, I'll answer it. I, for me, I'd go long Microsoft, short Apple. If I have to do a pair, that's what I would do. Yeah, that's a, um, that's much safer, you know, kind of pairs trade, right? Because they're both stable. They're, you know, the two largest businesses. 
And, you know, there's not going to be probably huge moves in either one. You know, there's not going to be a huge divergence, right? Which is going to yeah. obviously. You just have to, you, you just want to scalp a little spread here, you know? Yeah, um, yeah well, that's the way to do it. I think if you're just trying to, yeah, scalp, scalp, you know, a, a relatively safe hedged position like that. Um, I'm thinking more like, you know, what is the radical stuff that could happen? And that's where, you know, if you, yes. the economy obviously pulls back, you do, you know, you go long Microsoft and short one of the super high beta names. Absolutely. So let me ask you this instead then. Uh, are you more bullish on Google or Meta? What would you rather own? Uh, I think that's a really tough one. I'm gonna be honest. I think that's a really hard question. That was actually probably one of my worst. I I bought Meta so cheap and then I sold it way too early. So that was one that would have been my best holding this year. But um, I mean that rebound was insane. No tough. one I wanted mean, it at ninety. Nobody. Yeah. Now every, three, now everybody's like, clamoring for it. I mean, it's you know, it's the same with with other names, right? Of course. But that's how it goes. Like Amazon. I mean, Amazon went from you know, hundred to what one sixty. And now it's, I don't even know what it's at now. Oh, 140. Um, but everyone is, you know, selling it off like crazy. And then everyone that had good earnings, everyone that sold it like a week before earnings was buying it back $30 higher. Yep. Um, thinking, oh, now we love it, right? I mean, it went from, you know, what, let's see, 120 to, yeah. But, yeah it's been, it's been uh, an amazing stock. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of underlying value in AWS where you have to wonder like what AWS true value is. And then, are you getting potentially the rest of Amazon subsidiaries for free at that point? Yeah, yeah. Because that's how that's how much of a beast AWS is. Um, yeah, but to your question, I mean, Metaverse Alphabet. I mean, I I don't know. I don't focus. I don't pay too much attention to those two names, to be honest. Yes. Um, I mean, in terms of probably just more upside based on you know the size of the company, I'd say Meta, just because they still have a huge customer base, huge user base. Nineteen times forward earnings is really, um, really nice it's, too. It's more attractively priced, and there's probably just more runway for growth going forward. Right? Again, they can tap into those however many billions of, of daily users they have, and ultimately, you know, could lead to to big upside going forward. Whereas I just don't think you know Alphabet has the the potential for. So if I was just investing and said. You know, I want the upside 10 years from now, I'd say meta for sure. Yeah. I also think Google's got some issues from AWS and Azure taking some market share from Google Cloud. Yeah. I think yeah. that was pretty apparent in this uh, latest round of earnings calls. So I, I will agree with you there. The last one we're going to go here with, uh, Scoo, this is a fun one. What are you more confident in in 2024? The S&P 500 rising to 10% to hit 5,000. That CNBC headline, S&P hits 5,000. Or do you foresee maybe before that, or maybe just you don't see that happening at all, but you see this happening instead? Bitcoin rising to thirty to thirty-five percent to hit fifty thousand. What do you think is yeah. more likely in twenty twenty-four? Bitcoin, Bitcoin, easy. I'll take that. I'm with you. I'm with uh, you. I, I think, think there's, there's the so regulations. many regulatory tailwinds for Bitcoin. ETF with the first spot, you know, ETF coming to market likely by worst case March of 2024, I believe is the most updated. I mean, that's like worst case. And it seems like it's a slam dunk. Um, obviously, if there was challenges there and that didn't end up happening, that'd be a, a big headwind. But based on the what seems like pretty strong certainty of that happening, um, I think that's just going to be a massive tailwind for, for Bitcoin, especially. And then incrementally, you know, other crypto um, and blockchain technology as well, especially more of the, the established uh, you know, like Ethereum, which, you know, the potential for an Ethereum spot ETF becomes much more likely as well. And that's already in the works.
yeah, uh, as we speak too. So that's right. I'm going to say too. I'm going to agree with you, man. I think um, uh, you look at the the ETFs absolutely helping. I think you look at uh, any potential rate cuts at all in the second half of next year would skyrocket Bitcoin. Weaker U.S. dollar would help Bitcoin. Um, uh, less restrictive policy and just in general. Uh, yeah, I I see maybe, maybe risk on more risk on taking and just just even technically speaking, the, the charts are looking to be improving and uh, and you know there's big traders, big al- algorithms tied to to Bitcoin. So I think we see BTC at 50k before we see the SPX at 5,000. I'm gonna agree. Yeah, with I mean you. I I think yeah, it's I mean you know if you want you know predictions, I think we're gonna see Bitcoin at 50k next year. Yeah, I think you're, I think that's fair. I think it's fair. I'm looking to finally get back into crypto. So I sold it about two years ago. Did yeah. absolutely fantastic on Ethereum, and I, I think it's time to get back in with a completely different um, macro backdrop. I I know people were saying, "Oh, Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, they'll be those uh, safe haven hedges." They weren't. They they, sure, they, yeah. just, they just weren't. Um, but yeah, now I mean, when you flip the script, it's it's time for them to run now. I mean, it's all relative, right? I mean, you know, Nvidia was down. How much? Some of the big tech names were down. How much? Maybe. The aggregate bond index is down 20, right? So that's supposed to be the ultimate safe haven. So True. it's all relative, right? 2022 just kind of mi- shook everything up and, and flipped it on its head, right? Based on on everything we thought, you know, would happen with asset classes during, you know, a period of, of volatility, right? So I kind of look at 2022 as a, an anomaly in terms of, you know, what asset classes did, especially when you look at, you know, traditional bonds, and other things, right? I mean, I don't think anyone could have ex- would have would have expected it at one point a twenty percent drawdown in the ag investment grade U.S. There, I know corporate <laughs> treasuries and agency securities. And hey, listen, anomaly is a great word. So, like, I've been using the word nightmare, but anomaly works too. That that's a good one. You know, yeah, to I mean, describe twenty twenty two. I I just use the word nightmare. There's all sorts of weird years throughout history, right? And you know, twenty twenty two. That was one not, of them. Um, yeah, absolutely, sure. man, absolutely. But Scoo. That wraps up our time. I hope we can make this a recurring uh, thing that we do. I would love to have weekly episodes if we can. If not, bi-weekly. That'd be awesome. I think the people want to hear from us. We could do more current event type things. I'll keep fielding more questions. Um, I want to thank you for your time, man. I think this is really fun. And uh, we'll yeah. catch each other on the next episode, brother. Yeah, man. One closing comment I got to say is um, we might have to move back to you actually calling me by my name. Um, I know, you know. It's always Scoo. I've the, known the, you for Scoo, six Scoo, years now. Uh, the Scoo handle certainly has some staying power, but, um, you know, that, that actually came about in college, I think, man, or after college. So, well, ladies can't and get away from it. Scoo Steve, baby. Scoo Steve. Steve, Stephen Fairley, CFA. Thank you so much, man. We'll catch you on the next one. All right, brother? All right, guys, man. Good seeing you. Stay you safe. Too. You too, brother. Be good.